The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and uh, look to God's Word together. Before we actually get into Revelation 22, which is the last chapter of the Bible, the, re- the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, we're finishing the Bible today. That is exciting. The Christian life, it's over, we're done. We're going to look at chapter 22, 12, through the conclusion. Before we do, though, as I've been doing on frequent occasions, I want to read some key Old Testament verses first, because, like I said, when we started Revelation, so much of Revelation just flows out of, is the fulfillment of, makes allusions to the Old Testament. And if you're ignorant about the Old Testament, you're just not going to get the richness and the depth in the book of Revelation that is there that God's trying to communicate to you and to me. Uh, and I, I haven't been able to exhaust all of the Old Testament passages and verses uh, in our time together that John is relating to. But I, just when I can, I want to highlight some of the key ones. So we're going to look at a couple of short verses in the Old Testament and then to set the context, to lay the foundation so that you'll see its fulfillment in the day of John. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then have your finger in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 because that's where we're going next. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 was 1400 B.C., 3,400 years ago in the days of Moses. Uh, Moses led two million or a million plus Israelites out of Egypt into the desert, received the Ten Commandments and was about to enter the Promised Land. And after he received the Ten Commandments, plus all of the laws that God had given Moses to write down, and it was a lot of stuff he had to write down, the first five books really, of the Old Testament. Here's what God told Moses and the Israelites about the Word of God that Moses was writing down that became Scripture. God was telling Moses to have a very high, exalted, sacred view of written Scripture. And if you're a Christian, you need to have the same attitude about the Bible, Scripture. And here's what God told Moses, chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and we'll then go to verse 2. And now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, which he wrote down in Scripture, in order that you uh, may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Here's the key, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you. That's not just Moses talking, that is God talking. Do not add to the words of God. In the Old Testament, the most repeated refrain by a prophet, when he woke, wrote something down on behalf of God or spoke something on behalf of God, was he would say, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And many times the prophets would say that and then they'd write what God said. Thus saith the Lord. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding. In other words, don't add to what God said. We don't need more information. What he says is sufficient. Don't add to what God said. Don't add to the Bible. Don't add to Scripture. That's what that means. You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take away from it. Don't take away from God's word. Don't take away from revealed revelation. Don't take away from Scripture. Don't undermine Scripture. Don't question Scripture. Don't put the thought in somebody's head to not believe Scripture as God gives it. This is huge. This same verse is used in Revelation 22. We're going to be looking today. God's attitude has not changed in 3,400 years regarding the sacredness and the sufficiency of His Word, the Scriptures. 
Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from it. Huge. In order that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. I could go to Proverbs chapter 35 and 6. I won't, but it says the same thing. Don't add to God's word. You'll be punished if you do. That's what it says. Okay, now let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. A little different topic, but this a couple of these phrases are repeated verbatim in uh, Revelation 22 today. So Isaiah 40, what a great tra- chapter. This chapter is about the nature and character of God. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. This is God talking, says your God, verse 1. This is God talking through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ. So this passage is 2,700 years old, and it's still applicable and relevant today. Isaiah 40, verse 10 and 11 says this, Behold, behold. That is a significant word, behold. It says it twice in this verse. Behold, that means pay attention. That means wake up. That means get this. That means this is a priority. And it's a supernatural truth to be revealed. Behold, God is talking. It's emphatic. It's an exclamation point. Wow, what do you want us to pay attention to, Isaiah or God? Behold, the Lord God... This is a compound name of God. The word for God, actually, there is Yahweh. That's God's personal covenant-keeping name. That is His personal Yahweh. Behold, the Lord God, Lord Yahweh, will come with might. Now, I want you to put away your Christian thought of being a Christian who's lived after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we know that the Messiah is named Jesus. And put yourself back 700 years before Christ, before Jesus was born, before anybody even knew the name Jesus, because they didn't in the Old Testament. So Jews in Isaiah's day hear this prophecy. Don't think Jesus when you hear this. What is the Jew thinking of when Isaiah said this? Behold, the Lord God. Behold, Yahweh will come. I wonder what the Jew thought because I don't, I don't know if the Jews thought God had a body. They must have known that he was a spirit and didn't have a body. How can a spirit, almighty, infinite God of the universe come? I don't even know how they would envision or imagine that possibility. For us, it's easy because we know that God has become a man and he's in a physical body. And we know that this is talking about Jesus. He will come. But the promise that God would come to his people literally to the earth is not a New Testament concept. It comes right out of the Old Testament. And it's right here. And this verse is used and quoted in Revelation 22 today. And it's applied to Jesus. But here in the Old Testament, Yahweh will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. So he's coming as the judge. Behold, his reward is with him. He's coming to reward every single human being that was ever born and created in the history of the world. He's coming as a judge. He's coming to reward. He's coming to reward good and bad, by the way. And his recompense is before him. He's going to give back to what people deserve. Verse 11, like a shepherd. It's a beautiful picture. That is an intimate picture of the God of Yahweh who is coming. Yahweh will return to earth like a shepherd. A shepherd is someone who cares for his sheep. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. See, he's going to take care of them in his arm. He will gather the lambs. How intimate and beautiful of a picture is that? So to the believer, to the Christian, the coming of the prospect of God coming and Jesus returning is not a scary or frightful thing. It shouldn't be. Jesus returning, he is your shepherd. He's going to care for you and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That's something to be excited about for the believer. So the Old Testament promised that God would return and he would return with his reward. We're going to see that in Revelation 22 as well. And then Isaiah 66 verse 11. 
Uh, I'll just read that. It says uh, pretty much the same, sorry, 62.11. Picking up on that same thing, the promise that God is going to return. 62.11, behold, it's a double behold again. Behold, the Lord or Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth. This is to everybody, all of humanity. Say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God is coming. God is going to return. And then Isaiah 44, 6 on a different theme about, well, who is this God? What is he like? What is his name? What is his characteristics? What are his attributes? We get a hint on that on Isaiah 44, 6. This verse is also used in Revelation 22 to speak of Jesus. Isaiah 44, 6 says this, thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. Yahweh, the creator of the universe is talking in this verse, verse 6. But this is an intriguing verse. Look at it carefully. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel. That's God. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, and his Redeemer, the Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is talking and the Yahweh of hosts is talking. Yahweh is talking and the Redeemer of Yahweh is talking. Who is that? It's got to be the Messiah. Who is God? The Messiah is called God. God the Father is called God. They're both referred to as Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? Two persons, two distinct separate persons of the God. Two persons in one God. Two persons who say at the end of verse 6, I. Two persons who say I. Singular because they are one God. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. That's His name. I am the first and I... Well, so is God the Father the first and the last or is Jesus the first and the last? The answer is yes. The first and the last. What is that? Well, the first is the creator. The last is the culminator of all things. That means that God is sovereign over everything in the universe from beginning to end. That's true of God the Father. That is also true of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was not just a man, a religious teacher, or a philanthropic social worker with a great idea. He's the creator and the culminator, the first and the last, the eternal, sovereign, almighty God of the universe. Absolutely amazing. And Jesus calls himself this in Revelation 22. I am the first and the last. We won't turn to Isaiah 48, 12, but it just says the same thing. Only God and God alone is the first and the last. In the New Testament, uh, that is applied to Jesus Christ. In each of these passages, it says that Yahweh is the first and the last. In the New Testament, Yahweh is in reference to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. So that lays the foundation uh, for what we want to look at. Let's go ahead and uh, now go back to Revelation 22, 12 through the conclusion, 21. Uh, this, un- this is all a unit starting at chapter 21 and 22. It all goes together. 21 and 22 is God's portrait to us to let us know what the eternal heaven looks like, the eternal new Jerusalem city that Jesus is in the process of constructing and building and will exist for all eternity for those who know Jesus Christ personally will get to live in that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city. And we saw the details of actually what it looked like or what it's going to look like. And then the details of what it was going to be like inside of that city, fellowshipping with God and the Lamb Himself and the tree of life that we'll get to partake of and the river of life as well. And so that was the last couple of weeks. And now the summary uh, of concluding the entire book together, let alone uh, not just the chapters 21 and 22, and that is Jesus himself. This book of Revelation opened up with Jesus talking, giving us the title of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 said, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What you're about to read for 22 chapters is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What you're about to read is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his glory and mostly of the future. 
And now Jesus is concluding this book, this revelation, this story. And Jesus is actually concluding the entire canon of Scripture for us. There's nothing more to say or reveal after Jesus gave this revelation to John the Apostle, John the last apostle at the end of his life in the last book about revelation. Revelation is the final and last word from God to man in this life about what we need to know regarding everything pertaining to life and godliness. It is called the sufficiency of Scripture. After John penned this book and it was the last one, that was it. No more revelation was going to be given by God that we needed to know. It is totally sufficient. All 66 books of the Bible, totally sufficient. Everything we need to know. Not comprehensive, not everything we can know, but everything we need to know. Because beyond the book of Revelation, what more do you need? Because of the content of Revelation. Revelation starts with the church in John's day and goes into the future, to the tribulation, to the millennium, into the eternal state. What else more is there? Nothing. That's why we know this is the last written revelation from God during the church age. And and Jesus makes an emphatic statement about it at the end in verses 18 and 19. So this is God's last word of written revelation that saints, the church, and any unbelievers on planet Earth need to know until His Returns. So let's go ahead and look at uh, what Jesus has to say, not just to the churches, but to the entire world that are on earth, if they ever get a chance to read this. Uh, so the sermon I call Jesus' Last Appeal. Because it is, because Jesus makes a personal appeal. Uh, he reminds believers of the riches that belong to them, but he also, as always, is the blessed Savior, because that's the heart of Jesus, not just a judge, not just sent to mete out justice. He is the judge. He is the Holy One. But He's also got the heart of a merciful, patient, gracious, loving Savior. He loves sinners. He wants to forgive sinners of their sin. That's why Jesus came. The Gospel is clear, right? So all throughout the Revelation, the book of Revelation, you've got these appeals sporadically. Every once in a while, of God or of Jesus appealing to sinners. It's not too late. Believe before it's too late. Believe before it's too late. Come to Me. All who are weary and heavy laden. That is the heart of Jesus. Second Peter reminds us of that great passage where it says that uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and be saved of their sin, be saved of the wrath to come. So that's the heart of Jesus Christ. And so throughout this passage, you've got these great warnings, but at the same time, you've got the heart of Jesus the Savior appealing to those who don't know Him yet. Come, it's not too late. Come before it is too late. So let's go ahead and look at Jesus' last appeal to the world. And three points that I want to highlight here for us. And let's go ahead and look at the first one, which would be um, verses 12 through actually 16. We'll stop there. 12 through 16. And that is... The emphasis in 12 through 16 clearly is on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why I put uh, the person who offers salvation is Jesus. Jesus the God-man. That was God's plan of saving sinners, that God would come down, take on a human body, and become man. Became 100%, he was 100% God and became 100% man. He's the God-man. Jesus is still the God-man. He's the perfect Savior for human sinners. 100% God with the potential and ability to save us, and 100% man was our perfect substitute, went through everything that we ever went through, yet He did it without sin. So He could perfectly and totally relate to us as the perfect Savior, the God-man. And Jesus is the one and the only one that can offer salvation because He's the only one with the credentials to do it. So He accentuates that. So Jesus, the God-man, the blessed Savior. Let's see what Jesus says in this passage and highlight just a few things there. He starts at verse 12 and says, Behold, behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every person according to what they have done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, pay attention, wake up. I am coming quickly. Jesus is coming. That's always been the great confession of Christians for 2,000 years. 2,000 years, that's a long time, isn't it? And God knew that mockers would come along and mock us as Christians because we're waiting, right, for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The early church was. We've been waiting. You've been waiting your whole Christian life. When I got saved at age 19, I was praying it would happen that year. And then the next year. And the year after that. Now it's been almost 30 years. And I still want to be excited about the coming of Jesus, that it is imminent. That's the heart of a Christian because we long so much to see the blessed, resurrected Lord Jesus. But Jesus' promise is that I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And a couple of things I want to highlight there about Jesus' words. I am coming. That's a theme of this chapter. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 22, and behold, I am coming quickly. And then this verse, verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly. And the chapter ends at verse 20 where Jesus says, yes, I am coming quickly. That's the theme of the chapter. He is coming. And that should strike fear in unbelievers. That should strike motivation and praise and great joy and anticipation in believers. This is motive for living and motive for everything we do. Motive for our prayer life. Motive for our evangelism. Motive for our service in the local church, even if it's mundane service. Knowing that Jesus, the blessed Lord, He is returning. He's not just returning. The way that Jesus says this is very specifically. He says, I am coming. He doesn't say, I will come. But one of his favorite ways of expressing this is saying, I am coming. You know what? That's present tense. Literally, it means I am on the way. Isn't that a different picture? Hey, I am on the way. And so this guarantees the certainty of Christ's return. Let the mockers mock. Uh, but time will prove Jesus to be true. I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me. So there's the certainty of Jesus coming. And also that, that word there, quickly, there's a couple things that 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 means that term is just loaded it it speaks of uh, jesus is coming unexpectedly he's coming at a time where we don't know for the christian that could be a joyous thing for the unbeliever that's a scary thing that's why jesus says a few times matthew 24 and others he says he is coming unexpectedly like a thief when you least expect it and you're not prepared and you are not ready and yes that is a sobering thought if you don't know christ it is supposed to be sobering it's unexpected uh, but also that word quickly doesn't just mean unexpected. It also means imminent. There's an imminence to his coming. That means he could come at any time. We believe in the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ. He could come at any time. What that means is in God's, who is the architect of history, in his grand plan before the world was ever created, God had a plan and he knew what he was going to do. And he knew that all, how all of, all of history was going to unfold and all of the great events that were going to take place. And he knew what proper order every great event was going to happen in order to accomplish his great salvation. And so by Jesus saying, I'm going to come quickly, I'm going to come in imminently, I'm going to come at any time. It's the next event on God's clock and calendar. It's the next event on God's agenda. What that means is everything else has taken place. Nothing else needs to take place. All the great events that needed to take place have already transpired. For example, and in order, there was the creation. That took place. Then there was the fall, and God had to deal with that. And then there was the flood, and God had to deal with that, and He did. And then there was the law, and everything entailed in that. That was the next big event. These are all chronological. God knew about it. He planned it. Then after the law and Israel, then there had to be the incarnation, the coming of the God-man, and everything that that entailed about Jesus Christ in His life. And then there was the passion. That was the next great event. That was the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to accomplish salvation. And then the next great event in God's time clock and calendar was the building of the church the laying of the church 
and the New Testament and the whole Bible and putting that all together. That was the next great event that needed to happen. After that event, the next thing to happen on God's clock is His coming. It is imminent. Nothing else needs to happen. And whether it's the second coming of Christ or the rapture for the church, it is the coming of Christ. And that's what it means by I come quickly. It is the next great event. People question that and try to say, well, there's an error in the Bible. It says quickly and it's been 2,000 years. They don't understand the meaning of what Jesus said. I come quickly. It is imminent. Nothing else needs to happen. God's plan is right on schedule. It's awesome. Uh, and then he goes on, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming imminently, and my reward is with me. Remember, that came right out of Isaiah, that God is going to come to reward people. And the rewards are mentioned uh, many times in the book of Revelation. Believers will be rewarded. We saw some of those rewards in Revelation 2 and 3. And by the way, all the rewards in Revelation 2 and 3 are promised to Christians, overcomers. And all of the rewards promised in Revelation 2 and 3 are blessed, great, wonderful, fantastic rewards for Christians. But he's not just giving rewards to Christians. He's also going to reward unbelievers. He's going to re reward them or recompense them. And that means give them their due. And it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly. It's actually scary. Because God is a just God. He's a perfect judge. And in the book of Revelation, the basis of God giving rewards is always based on works. That's what he says. I will, base, I will judge you based on your works. Well, what is the work of a Christian? According to the Gospel of John, the only work that we need to do is to believe in the Gospel. That's our work. We exercise faith in what God has revealed. That is the work. That's what Jesus said. Work the works of God. Believe in Jesus. It's not a human work. It's a divinely uh, given capability through the Spirit of God to believe in the Gospel. That's what human works... Uh, that's what uh, supernatural works are from God. To believe in the Gospel. And then when you become a Christian, then you are called to service to do good works for God on His behalf throughout your entire Christian life. And so someday Jesus is going to uh, gauge everything we did as a Christian. Everything we did. Everything we said, everything we spoke, everything we thought, and it's going to be judged by Jesus Himself as believers. And, and God and Jesus is also going to judge the works of unbelievers. And they have rejected the Gospel. And so the only thing that they have to be judged are their evil works. Even works that they thought were good, Wonderful, spiritual, religious, good intentions. According to Isaiah, their works are nothing more than filthy rags. That's what the Scripture says. And they will be punished accordingly. They have no reward or blessing to inherit whatsoever from their rewards. God is not interested in human works. As a matter of fact, they are considered filthy rags before His sight. I just want to make a few comments regarding this idea of being rewarded. We will be rewarded by God. Some people think that's kind of a crass concept. Oh, how crass and humanistic and self-centered is the idea that you're going to get rewards in heaven from God for being a Christian down on earth. Well, actually, it's a biblical concept, so it's not crass. Hebrews 11.6 says that God is a rewarder of person. He's a rewarder. That's who he is. It's his very character and nature to reward and to bless. Isn't that a great thing? That is who God is. That is a good thing. That is not a bad or crass thing. He's a faithful judge, and he judges and gives rewards appropriately and in a blessed manner to believers. So getting rewards from God is a great thing. As a matter of fact, the apostles use that as motivation for us. Let no man take your reward. Be faithful. Stay persevering so that you don't lose out on your reward, so that you can collect all of your reward that would belong to you in faithful service to Christ. That is not a bad thing. That's great motivation. That's why I like Awana. 
Why do you say that? Well, Awana, they're, they're into positive incentives. That's a ministry for kids. And they actually have awards that I think are legitimate and good as positive incentives to encourage young children in memorizing the Word of God and also understanding and applying biblical truth. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's why I like the Awana ministry, or one of the reasons why, because I think it's realistic. Because that's how life is. That's how God is. Because more and more people deny that reality and say, well, nobody should get rewards because if some people get rewards and then some don't get rewards and their feelings will be hurt and will psychologically bruise and ruin them uh, for the rest of their life and then they won't be able to survive in life later because we all know that in life when you grow up later, everybody's a winner, right? Nobody loses in life. It's like, not. It's actually detrimental to teach young children the very opposite truth. So the idea of rewarding comes from the heart of God himself. He wants to bless. He wants to reward. Uh, a little bit more about our rewards. Uh, I want to look at 2 Corinthians 5.10 briefly and then uh, 1 Corinthians 3.9. Those are the two clearest passages about rewards. So if you're a Christian, this applies to you. So put yourself in this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Put your name in there. For we... For Cliff McManus, for whatever your name is, I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That could be scary, huh? It's going to be glorious. It's going to be uh, exposing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, wow. It is intimidating. But it's also supposed to be a blessed thing for the believer. You must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, or actually the uh, stand where the Bema judgment is and was used many times as an awards ceremony. So that's not a bad thing. The seat of awards. In order that each Christian, put your name in there, may be recompensed or paid back for all of your deeds that you did in the body while you were Christian in this life. And you'll be rewarded according to what you have done. Whether it was good or not bad, whether it was good or worthless is a better translation. Not evil. So as a Christian, you serve God and you're thinking, oh, this is, uh, I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this ministry to please God. And that may be good or bad. The only one that knows that is Jesus himself, and he will reveal that. He will tell you when you get to heaven. You know that thing that you said you were doing for me over at that church? Well, that was a good thing. And then Jesus will reward that. And it could be, remember that thing you were doing in my name that you said was a ministry for other people? That was bad. It was, yeah, it was really bad. It was actually, you know what, it was worthless. You're not getting any rewards for that. That's how. That's what this is talking about. So everything is going to be scrutinized fairly, honestly, and objectively by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be rewarded according, accordingly based on everything that we did, said, and thought, whether good or worthless as a Christian. We're not going to be punished for our sin. This is not talking about being punished for sin. Oh, you're going to get 15 lashes for that sin. We already got our lashes for our sin when Jesus died on the cross. He got lashed for us. He was our substitute. So there's no judgment for sin at this judgment of rewards. It's an awards ceremony. It's a blessed thing for the Christian. And only Christians go to this awards ceremony before Christ, the Bema judgment of Christ. Let's look a little more detail about how believers will be judged. First uh, Corinthians 3, nine, verses 9 and following. Um, or actually, we'll start at verse 11. For no one, no Christian can lay, or actually no person can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of everything you do in life as a Christian should be based on Jesus Christ. It should all be Christocentric. You do 
everything and say everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Why do you get here early on a Sunday morning and set up the music and work back there and set up the chairs and do stuff that nobody even sees that is so important and do the dishes and the fellowship meal and the fellowship ball? Why do you do that? Only God knows. And only Jesus knows he's going to judge your motive. All those things that I mentioned are incredibly helpful and blessed in terms of what they contribute to the local church. I am blessed by those kind of ministries. And Jesus is going to judge it all. And here's how he's going to judge it. Um, were you doing it for Jesus Christ, his glory, his church, his people, his good? That's the foundation. Verse 12. Now, if any person, any person builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Straw is worthless. Straw accomplishes nothing. Gold. Some of your works might be gold and silver. Good. Good stuff. Precious stones. Beautiful. Wood. It's got its place. Hay, straw, bad news. Fluffy stuff, superficial, worthless. That's what our our works are like. Any one of those. Verse 13, each Christian's work will become evident. Jesus is going to make it evident. For the day will show it at judgment day, at the day of judgment, because it will be revealed with fire. Jesus is going to take a supernatural heavenly torch to everything we ever did. (laughs) And whatever was hay, stubble, wood, burn up, gone. History, you don't get a reward for that. What remains is beautiful and precious to him. Gold, silver, precious stones. You will be rewarded for those good works. It's a great thing. So that's the rewards it's talking about. What are these rewards we're going to get in heaven? As best as I can determine from Scripture, the actual rewards that we will be given in heaven, I don't know if they're necessarily a crown as much as a crown is metaphorical and picturesque for something else. I think the rewards in heaven are going to be responsibilities, privilege, heavenly duties, to serve on behalf of God in heaven for all eternity. I think that's what the rewards are going to be based on Scripture, based on our faithfulness in this life. One comment about Isaiah's reference to all of our works are like filthy rags. And I hear preachers even and other Bible teachers apply that to the work of a Christian in service in this life to the church, and I don't think that's how it applies. I don't think God looks down at our works that were done faithfully serving Him and serving the church and serving others and that God and the Trinity up in heaven look at our works and say, oh, those are filthy rags. I think when we do something that blesses somebody in the church or another person, I think God is satisfied and pleased with our good works. Because that's what Ephesians 2.10 says. He doesn't just look at all of our works and say, oh, they're all the same, they're all filthy. That isn't even what that verse is talking about. Talking about works that humans try to do to earn salvation and earn forgiveness of sin. By their own works. That is filthy. That is disgusting to God. The works that Christians do in faithful service in the church and in the world, that is a beautiful, blessed thing to God. That He, it's a beautiful aroma that pleases the triune God of the universe. He is pleased with faithful service. Well, Jesus is qualified to be judge and do all this and give rewards. And let's, that takes us to the rest of this passage in 12 through 16. So let's look at it. How is it that Jesus can say that my reward is with me, implying that he is the judge? He knows everything. He knows everyone's hearts. He knows the works of all people throughout all history and that he even has the authority to do such a thing. Why can Jesus say that? Well, because of his qualifications and the very nature of who he is. And that's verses 13 all the way to verse 16. In light of who Jesus is, he is qualified to be the faithful judge of every human soul. He calls himself in verse 13, the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter. In other words, he is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. What does that mean? It means he started everything, he's going to finish everything. That also means he has control over everything. That means he also is the eternal one. He is the infinite one. He is before time, he's even after time. 
He is the sovereign one. He's totally in control of all things. He is the ultimate king of kings and judge of everything. He is the first and the last. He is Yahweh himself. He is God. And that's why he has the authority to judge everyone and issue rewards. He is qualified. That's why. He's also qualified in verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, by virtue of his name, he's qualified. Jesus means savior. Only God is savior. Jesus is qualified to judge every believer because he died for them. He paid the price for them. He rose from the dead for them. He ascended on high for them. He's the savior of the world. That's why he's qualified. And also at the end of verse 16, he calls himself the root and the offspring of David. That primarily is a Jewish term. King David. The promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Who was the greatest king in the Old Testament on a human level? It was King David. Jesus is even greater than David. And it's it's amazing here because Jesus is called the root of David and the offspring of David. Uh, Jesus is a descendant of David literally by blood. Not only that, which speaks of Jesus as a man. Not only that, it says that Jesus is the root of David. The very existence of David. The one that came before David. Isn't that amazing? That is the fact that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. That's why he's qualified. And he's qualified to judge every human being, regardless of where you come from, whether you're a Gentile, a Christian, or a Jew. Because those terms right there, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end, that's Jesus calling himself the creator of the universe, and that is in reference primarily to Gentiles. He's qualified. Even if you don't believe him, he is qualified. And then he refers to himself as Jesus, Savior of the church. So he's qualified to rule over all Gentiles, over the church. And then finally, in reference to David as the offspring and the root, he's talking to all Jews. So whether you're a Gentile, Christian, or Jew, it doesn't matter. That's all of humanity. Jesus is qualified to be judge. Amazing. Jesus, the God-man. Let's go on to point number two, and that's verse 17. And that's the price of this great salvation that is offered and accomplished by Jesus Christ. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. That's the Holy Spirit pleading for the coming of Jesus Christ. After the Holy Spirit has revealed all this information about the coming of Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit prays, Lord Jesus, come. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit prays that. The Holy Spirit prays. The good news is the Holy Spirit's prayers are always answered. Jesus will come. Not only does the Spirit pray, but the bride prays. That's everybody saved throughout all of the ages at this point. Praying in unison, in sync with the Spirit of God. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, that's a beautiful word. You know what that means? That's a prayer from... A scripture meaning, come Lord Jesus. And that should be coming from our lips regularly and routinely. Come Lord Jesus. Come because we look so much forward to seeing Him, but also come to deliver me from this life. Come Lord Jesus. Then it says, uh, and let the one who hears say come. That's actually an evangelistic outreach right there in verse 17. Let the one who hears. It's talking to people who are alive who hear this, who are not saved. They don't believe yet. And yet this invitation is given by God. Those who hear the gospel, those who hear about Christ and His work, believe in Him. And then you will become a believer. And then you also will have a love for Jesus Christ. And then you also can join with the bride and the Spirit saying, Come, Lord Jesus. He talks more specifically about this invitation of those who don't know Jesus yet in the middle of verse 17. And he says, And let the one who is thirsty come. So he gets real specific about the one who hears. Who are you talking about, Jesus? Well, it's the one who's thirsty. It's the one, they haven't been satisfied yet, they're thirsty. They have a spiritual longing. They have a desire to be saved as they live life. They realize that nothing in this life can fulfill or satisfy them ultimately. And there's this growing 
longing desire for fulfillment, satisfaction, alleviation of guilt that plagues every human being, whether they want to admit it or not. Haunted by guilt. Because God has put in them a conscience to do that. And then some become thirsty. Thirsty for spiritual truth. Thirsty for forgiveness of sin and knowing God for who He really is. And we don't come up with that thirst on our own. God in His grace puts that thirst inside of us. Isn't that amazing? He does. Through the Spirit of God and through the truth of the Word of God and circumstances in life, God created, if you're a Christian, God created a thirst in you first. And that thirst grew and then you cried out to God and He saved you and He quenched that thirst. And this is an open invitation by Jesus Christ. And let the one who is thirsty come. Is the atonement limited or unlimited? I hate that question. That is so distracting. Is the death of Christ, did He die for everybody or did He die just for the elect? I don't even want to go into that conversation because it's really not relevant. Um, Because we know that only... A few will be saved. Yet at the same time, I believe that Jesus' invitation and call for the gospel is unlimited. It's an unlimited invitation. Isn't it? It's to the whole world. See that over and over and over. Jesus said that. Anyone who is weary and heavy laden, come, come. Isaiah 55, anyone, anyone. So the invitation is unlimited. Those who will embrace Jesus Christ, yes, that's limited. So is the atonement limited or unlimited? The answer is yes. The work of Christ. And here is this unlimited, gracious invitation to anybody who would come and be saved by Jesus. And he says, anybody who's thirsty, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. And what is the water of life? That's just salvation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only water that satisfies the soul. It's the water of the reality of Jesus Christ, that he's the God-man, that he died as your substitute on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God on behalf of all of your sin, and that he conquered death by rising from the dead. He ascended back into heaven. He rules from heaven as the King of kings and the God of the universe. And he's calling you as a sinner to embrace him as Savior and Lord. So all of your sins might be forgiven. Come, and all you have to do, it's without cost. It's believe. That's what that means, without cost. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't go to church for it. It's believing God at His Word. Come without cost. Why is it without cost? Because there's nothing we could give God to earn it. We're we're spiritual paupers. We have nothing to offer. We lift our hand up to God. There's nothing to offer but our sin. That's why it's without cost. And if you believe that, you believe the good news about Jesus Christ, you believe Him at His Word, you recognize your sin, you call out to Him as Savior and Lord, Jesus, save me. He'll answer that prayer and you'll be saved in a moment of time. And you'll be adopted into the family of God, all of your sins forgiven. And then you will be a part of the bride who will someday meet Jesus Christ. So that is the price. It is by grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. And salvation by grace through faith, apart from any works, is a distinctive of true, pure, biblical Christianity and has been all throughout history. Ever since the time of the fall in Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, Cain tried to work his way to please God with his works. And God looked down on it. Abel trusted in the grace of God with what he had to offer to God. And God bestowed favor on Abel. Same thing with Adam and Eve when they sinned. First thing they did, they, they, they felt guilt when they sinned. They ran away from God. And then they tried to cover their sin by human works by taking leaves and making their own clothing to cover their sin, to cover their shame. And God said, that is not good enough. That is human works. That is not sufficient. It doesn't cover your sin. 
Your man-made works of human clothes made out of fig leaves don't cut it. Let me intervene on your behalf and save you and do something you can't do. And then God killed an animal, slaughtered an innocent animal, shed blood, took the animal's clothing, clothing and put garments on Adam and Eve to remind them that covering sin comes only through the work of God graciously where a death has been made on behalf of them as a substitute. Blood must be shed, and God is the one who needs to do it. In Genesis chapter 3, you have a picture, 4,000 years of Jesus Christ and what He would do as the Lamb of God, slain, blood slain for sinners. Nothing we do, only the grace of God. So it is by grace alone, God's grace, and we receive it by faith. What a great truth. So we've got the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man, His Glorious work which is accomplishing salvation by grace through faith, through the work of the cross. And then finally, it closes with this, verses 18 to 22, as Jesus is talking and then John concludes the book. And that is the penalty of rejecting all this great, glorious, saving news I just talked about. If you hear about Jesus and reject him, if you hear about the gospel that is the gospel of grace and you reject it, there is a penalty, there is a consequence, there is an eternal one. And we saw that starting in chapter 14 of Revelation, chapter 18, 19, 20, 21. It keeps talking about if you reject Jesus Christ as the Savior and His gracious offer of salvation, there will be eternal, severe, eternal consequences in the lake of fire. We need to hear about the warning. We can't just hear about the good news only. We need to hear about the consequences as well. And I, I've shared a little bit before. I remember when I was in college and a world-known evangelist, trying to teach us collegiates on how to share the gospel. Rule number one, whatever you do when you go out and interact with unbelievers, don't tell them about hell. You might scare them. I'm thinking, well, that's probably a good idea. Don't we want to scare them? We want to scare them about reality, what the consequences would be. And then not long after that, I met a, a friend of mine who's now a pastor and his testimony is amazing. I'll never forget it because it's the first kind of testimony like it I had heard. I didn't grow up in the church and he told me how he got saved. Well, how'd you get saved? He grew up in a Christian home. And then at age five, he went to VBS Vacation Bible School. And then he heard the lesson of the day on a Tuesday. And whoever the hell, fire and damnation preacher was at Vacation Bible School talking to those five-year-olds talked about hell and the devil. And if you die rejecting Jesus Christ, you will go to hell and you'll be punished forever. And he's, that scared the kid out of his wits. He had to go to the bathroom. Five years old. He says he remembers it crystal clear definitively. It was over 25 years ago. And he went in the bathroom and he cried and he was shaking and he was scared. And he said, Jesus, save me. Save me from hell. Save me from the devil. Save me from my sin. And boom, you know what? Jesus met him in the bathroom. Boom, saved him. Age five, 25 years ago. And he said... You know, when I tell people about the gospel, I want to tell them about the realities of hell and the, con the negative consequences as well. Because that's sharing the whole truth. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The good news, which is the gospel, and the bad news. The good news saves you from the bad news. So we need to hear about it. Great story. Well, let's look at this, uh, 18 through 21, and some of the consequences and the reminders that Jesus himself gives. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. He's talking about the book of Revelation. I think this is Jesus talking personally, myself, after studying it. And then John picks up in verse 20. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Wow. That is severe. If anybody tampers with the book of Revelation and what it talks about, it's words to the churches 
It's uh, predictions about the future, about the tribulation, about the Antichrist, about the millennium, about who Jesus is, about the eternal state, about the new heaven and the new earth. If anybody tweaks or tampers with that, they put them in a, in a, themselves in a position to be judged severely by God. So much so that they will have the judgments even written in and talked about in Revelation, which is uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. Or The point is the, the full fury of the wrath of a holy God will be on your head if you undermine God's word and distort it. And also the lake of fire. That will be your end. That will be your destiny. If you take away from the word of God. That's what Jesus said in John 3.36. Believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. If you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on you. Present tense. Jesus said that. He says the same thing here. I testify to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of the book of Revelation. Wow, man, how much more important is it now for us to read the book of Revelation, know what it says, study it, be careful with it, believe it, protect it, as opposed to shying away from it and being ignorant of it and say, oh, it's too confusing. No, God expects us to read it, study it, apply it, understand it, protect it, believe it, don't undermine it, and make sure those who are believers around you don't do the same thing and undermine its truth. So don't add to it. Now, false religions throughout the last 2,000 years have continually added to the truth of Revelation. What is Revelation about? It's about the churches. It's about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is. It's about the future. It's about eschatology. It's about the tribulation. It's about judgment day. It's about how the world ends. It's about heaven. It's about death. It's about what happens when you die. you got all kinds of false religions adding to all that stuff. And John is saying, and Jesus is saying, don't. Don't believe anybody that adds to that. And religions continually add to this. There's, pl- there's plenty of religions that actually, they accept the whole, the Bible, the whole Bible, but not, nothing but the Bible. They, they accept the Bible and then they add to it. I think of Mormonism, which I was introduced to at a very young age, throughout my whole life. They believe in the Bible. See, they actually think there's the superior religion, at least when they talk to you. Because we, well, we believe in the Bible too, but we've got these three other books from God too. No, you're adding to God's revelation. That is very dangerous. Don't do that. I grew up as a Catholic. There are plenty of doctrines that were added to the Bible when I was growing up as a Catholic that should not be added to God's revelation. That is very dangerous. I think of purgatory, the idea that when you die, you don't go to heaven, you don't go to hell. You go into a holding tank where you are literally purged. That's what purgatory means, purging, burning with fire for maybe hundreds of years or even thousands of years, if necessary, to purify you of Sin that wasn't forgiven by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. That's what purgatory is for. It talks about the afterlife. Revelation talks about the afterlife and what it's really like. And if you believe in purgatory and teach that, you are adding to God's word. Don't do that. It's deceptive. It is dangerous. I can understand an unbeliever and a false religion adding to God's truth and his word. What I can't understand is when people who call themselves Christians or actually Christians themselves add to God's word and his revelation. They shouldn't do that. But Christians do do that at times, and they need to acknowledge it, repent from it, turn away from it, guard against it. We cannot be adding to God's Word. And one of the most common ways that Christians do that today, it is commonplace, is when a Christian says, well, God told me this, and God said this, and God told me this. Did you know that the phrase, God told me this, is synonymous with the Old Testament prophetic phrase, thus saith the Lord? And we need to understand that. We need to make a distinction. And don't be confused by what I'm saying. It is not legitimate to say that, as a Christian, to say God revealed this to me supernaturally 
on an equivalent with what biblical scripture says with new information. God doesn't give us new revelation. But God does work with the Christian on a very personal, intimate, subjective level with the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and the truth of Scripture and believers around us to prompt us in life. So he does subjectively speak to our hearts, not audibly, not in visions, according to Hebrews 1.1. He does speak quietly to our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God and through Scripture he speaks to us about how we are to live life. So he does speak. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak. He does. He speaks through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, to us very personally, very intimately. He speaks to us also through prayer. But He's not giving ongoing new revelation beyond Scripture that is on a par and equivalent with Scripture. That is not happening. So be careful when you say, well, God told me this, or God spoke this to me. And when Christians do that to me, I usually follow up, really? Did, he, did you hear His voice? Was it audible? What did his voice sound like? I'd really like to know because I've actually never heard God speak audibly. And if you get him into a corner, typically they'll say, well, no, it wasn't audibly. Oh, okay. Phew. I was getting nervous. Because God's having private conversations with you, man. I'm jealous. He never has private conversations with me. He only speaks to me through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That is his Word. And it's just as real. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing my very inner being. God does speak. But be careful about how you represent God and how he does speak. And there's a problem with that in the church today. God spoke to me. God said, God, because you could, you know, that actually could be the devil talking to you. The devil, he's in deception. The devil appears as an angel of light so that he might deceive even believers. And I've said that to a few people. Well, God spoke to me and he said this and this and this. I'm thinking, dude, that's totally contrary to scripture. Are you sure that wasn't Satan talking to you? I mean, that's kind of a big difference. Jesus talked to me and Satan talked to me. Let's think this through here. I want to help you out. But this is practical. And so that's what he's saying here. Do not add. Do not add. John was the last prophet of God that gave supernatural revelation. Another thing I like to say to Christians when they use that phrase, God spoke to me and said this. After all the other interrogating questions I say to them that make them uncomfortable. Uh, then I say, well, so if God said this to you, then... How do you know it's true if God said that to you? Well, I, uh, I compare it with Scripture. Well, then don't you just need Scripture? That's the whole point. You compare it with Scripture? Or if they don't know, sometimes they'll say, if God spoke to you and he said this and told you to do this, how do you know it's true? And they'll say, well, I don't know. And I say, well, you're supposed to compare it to Scripture. And they'll say, oh, yeah. Well, okay, well, if you compare it to Scripture and it's true and valid in light of Scripture, then it's superfluous and you don't need it because it's already in Scripture. And if you evaluate it in light of Scripture and it's contrary to Scripture, then it is not true. It is wrong. And that was not God talking to you. That was either Satan or the pizza you had yesterday bothering your stomach. So God is serious about this. The sacredness of His Word, but also the sufficiency of Scripture. It is enough. What we have in Scripture, it is enough. So I don't have a problem if you say God spoke to my heart through the Spirit. God prompts me. That's Romans chapter 8. He does. He speaks to us through Scripture and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we usually don't know if He was actually speaking to us until we look in hindsight and examine that in light of Scripture. Uh, so here are some warnings of judgment. One is positive, one is negative, or actually one is uh, passive and one is active. One adds something bad and another negates a blessing. And so the judgment... 
that is promised in verse 18 is something that God will do to the unbeliever, that he will add to them. The severity of the judgment will be increased if anybody tampers with and messes with God's word. Boy, if you mess with God's word, God shall add to you the plagues which are written in it. And then the flip side of this judgment from God is negation, this taking away. Verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, don't mess with the book of Revelation. Don't take away from the truths of Revelation. Don't undermine the truths of Revelation. Don't take away from it. There are plenty of false religions that have taken away from the book of Revelation and what it has to say about eschatology and end times and how the world will end and what heaven is like. They've taken away. They've dismissed Revelation. They've eliminated it. They say it's not true, whether it's Islam, and they say only their book is true and they only have part of the Bible in there. But they don't have anything to do with Revelation. They've eliminated Revelation as an option. So that's, that is wrong. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree in life. In other words, you're not going to heaven. If you take away from God's prophecy and from his scripture and what has been revealed, you put yourself in a position of being unforgiven and you are not going to go into heaven. You will go to the lake of fire forever. Do not tamper with the word of God. And that's why Christians should be particularly careful about taking away from the truths of the book of Revelation. And it happens all the time. Some Christians do it unwittingly. Some do it because they've been misled, but they shouldn't be doing it. They shouldn't be taking the book of Revelation and saying things like, well, the millennium isn't going to happen. What do you mean it's not going to happen? It just John just said it's going to happen. Jesus just said it's going to happen. What do you mean the tribulation isn't yet future and literal on earth and going to happen? John spent eight chapters telling us what it looks like. What do you mean the Antichrist isn't real? John just told us it's real. All these truths need to be believed because... They are true, and God warns us if we dismiss them or undermine them and reject them, tampering with the Word of God. So don't take away from God's prophecy. But if you do, God shall take away His part from the tree of life and from the holy city. You won't go to heaven. You'll end up in the lake of fire. The holy city, the things that are written in this book. By the way, some of you might have a King James or New King James in verse 19 where it says, not the tree of life, but the book of life. The book of life. If you have a King James or New King James, it actually should be the tree of life. Your Bible doesn't have an error in it, but thanks to Erasmus in 1516 and apparently he was reading in a very dark cave with a flickering candle and couldn't get his Latin letter straight, he messed it up on a manuscript and he put the book of life instead of the tree of life. And we've inherited that in some versions, particularly the King James and the New King James. But uh, the rest of you probably have it right. It is the tree of life. And Jesus and John conclude with the great statement in 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Maranatha. That is the great prayer of every true believer. And I say this to you after a wonderful study of the book of Revelation. It's been a privilege to do it. I've had great interaction with many of you, whether personal conversations or you've attacked me in the corner with a question that I couldn't understand, or maybe you shot me an email and we've dialogued there. Many of you have told me that you have been blessed as well studying this great and fantastic book. I say to you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all and all of God's people said, Amen. And with that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank Him for the privilege and Father, we do thank you as a congregation, as your people, as the body of Christ, as dear saints whom you have made holy by your grace. Thank you for adopting us into your spiritual family through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for ongoing forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you for the truth of your word and that you do speak to us. 
clearly in an intimate, ongoing, personal, supernatural way. True communion, true communication. Thank you for that personal relationship we can have with you. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at this wonderful book of Revelation and how you have shown to us in a glorious way the exalted Jesus Christ. And God, with all of God's people around the world and throughout the ages, we pray from our hearts, even so, come Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.